It's the Thought Eater, Thought Eater, Thought Eater RPG Show. It's the Thought Eater, Thought Eater, Thought Eater RPG Show. We've got blogs! Well, that's it. at the map of the week. Adventures in art! Le Chadron Comatique! Oui, oui! It's the Thought Eater, Thought Eater, Thought Eater RPG Show. It's the Thought Eater RPG Show. Welcome to the Thought Eater Thought Pass. <laughs> what is up, everybody? It is Froth here, Thought Eater Podcast, Thought Eater Blog. In a good mood. Hope you're doing well. Thank you, as always, for listening. Back around again to a Hump Day RPG show, weekly show, where I take you on a little guided tour around the DIY blogosphere, xenosphere. Let's roll with it. We take a look at cool posts, zine news, maps, free stuff, the whole shebang. And uh, all the stuff I talk about, and it's going to be a lot. You can find all the links over at the Thought Eater blog. Just Google Thought Eater blog. And if you're a blogger while you're at it, add it to your blog roll. Follow it. Before we get started, the Froth Drive continues. Are you a weekly listener to the show? Do you like what I'm doing? Chip in a dollar. Chip in a buck. Patreon dot com forward slash thought eater do it it's only a buck do it big show today i have a great special guest for y'all today creator of the popular sci-fi horror game mothership sean mccoy joined zine club great conversation i hope you will all enjoy listening to it cover a lot of topics so i'm excited to share that with y'all and a bunch of other stuff, all the usual good stuff. But first, we got some call-ins and some good ones. Over, you know, I love getting call-ins. If you want to call in on the show, it's really easy. You go to anchor.fm forward slash thought eater, click the message button, and you're on your way. Sometimes people would rather email me MP3s. You can do that too. It's froth, S O F, S O F stands for Soderfrost froth sof at gmail.com so send me a message i will play it on the show got some messages about recent topics got some stuff about the final topic from last week which was in a nutshell that puzzles suck puzzles and role-playing games suck also got a bunch of messages about the sci-fi question from five minute friday you know, uh, there's a little bit of different, more people listen to this show than to my Friday show, but Fridays is just five minutes. I usually just throw a topic out there and, uh, just whatever's on my mind. And where we were talking about kind of, you know, there are people playing sci-fi. Don't get me wrong. Heck, a lot of people play mothership that we're going to be talking about today, but, uh, the percentage relative to fantasy and horror is small especially fantasy, but very small compared to hard to. So I was wondering why that is. But first, let's start on some of the puzzle stuff. I got a message from Hodag RPG. I've been sharing their stuff recently. Prolific designer and talented artist. Let's see what Hodag has to say about puzzles. Hey there, Thought Eater. 
This is Hodag RPG using my radio voice to thank you so much for all of the kind words you've said about my dice adventure games. And also just to throw in and say 100% absolutely puzzles are the bane of my existence in role-playing games, as well as possibly mysteries. I mean, you know, who doesn't love playing Cobalt SVU or Dungeons Criminal Intent? Uh, I don't want to track down mysteries. I don't want to clues. I don't want to have to spend multiple campaign sessions looking for something that's not a quest item. Like, you know, oh, I got to go talk to Billy the Barkeep or Braganar the Dock Master. No, thank you. Anyways, uh, great podcast. I've been loving it. Listen to the back episodes. This is wonderful. Anytime you want to have me on, just let me know. Good to hear from Hodag RPG there. And of course, they're so prolific. They come up again later in the show. Keep putting out these awesome pamphlets, pamphlet games. So I keep putting them out. I'm going to keep posting them. But yeah, mysteries, you know, interesting. We've been talking about mysteries a little bit lately. You know, most of the time, I agree with the sentiment that system doesn't matter. But when it comes to mysteries, system kind of does matter a little bit. And I don't think that D&D is maybe the best system for running mysteries. They run a little bit better at low levels, granted. But there's always, and it's not just mysteries, there's always these kind of, uh, depending on the kind of adventure people are trying to run or in published adventures, there's always these caveats, these uh, kind of exclusions of things that have to happen in D&D for it to work. Like I was reading a blog post, I forget by who recently, but it was all about noir-themed adventures for 5e and everything. And, you know, it was interesting advice. And then it got to a section where it's like, oh, and here's a list of spells to cut out of the game, you know? And I was thinking, this message got me thinking about Isle of the Ape from Gary Gygax. Really cool adventure, very high level, but for it to work right there in the beginning, it's like, and eh, you can't use any of these spells, you know? And you see it in other places too. No, we got to trap them. So you can't use such and such, this, this, and this. Or, yeah, it's a mystery, but you can't use this spell, this spell, you know. So anytime you have to kind of cut that many things out, it's a sign that it's maybe not quite designed to do that, which is fine, which is fine. Because I really love mystery games. I really do. But I don't know that D&D is maybe the best system for them. Anyway, great to hear from you, Hodag. Let's see, who we got up next? Uh, okay, yeah, another message about puzzles. This one from Taylor Beeson. Puzzles suck. They suck. I'm just kidding. I actually have a story about getting kicked out of a group before for complaining about a puzzle in character. Uh, but beside beside that, one of the reasons given on the uh, Wednesday show for why puzzles slow down game is that they introduce a problem-solving scenario. Now, the curious point there is what's wrong with solving problems? 
uh, in games I've played in and games I've run, solving problems is an integral part of the experience. Uh, it's a almost a form of conflict resolution that doesn't involve uh, combats. So just curious uh, as to your thoughts on that subject and what kind of problem solving is good, bad, or indifferent to your experience. Thanks for doing what you do, buddy. Great to hear from you, Taylor. I appreciate the call. It is nice to get some calls uh, from some folks that I do not hear from very often uh, or new callers. So everyone out there, if you're listening, please feel encouraged to call at anchor.fm forward slash thought eater. And yeah, I mean, I think that they just maybe maybe poor choice of words there or maybe they meant a specific type of problem because obviously problem solving is definitely part of the game. Certainly old school D and D a lot of it comes down to creative problem solving stuff that is not on your character sheet. And that's the stuff that I really love. Uh, your call reminded me of fun times running games where the players had to come up with creative ways uh, like one uh, in my night below game they had to come up with creative ways to get into this keep and everything. And it all involved some poison they had, and they basically gave food poisoning to, to everybody there. And it was this, you know, really creative, you know, not to get too, too much into detail about it, but it was this creative scheme and plan that they hatched. And it, it, it was really fun and funny. And, and, um, you know, just the other day I was play testing my 12 V 12 game, Coming soon, coming soon. Play testing that with the family went really well. Got a great review from my nine-year-old. So and sometimes that is the best review. That means more to me than a lot of other, uh, you know, a lot of other accolades. But uh, they, uh, my daughter watches this show. I forget the name of it. Something magic or something. But it's about these three tween age girls that uh, have gained access to this to, to some food additives and food products that all you know there's like a cookbook that's like a spell book anyway it's a pretty good kid show someone else might know what I'm talking about I forget the exact name but anyway just to show off the versatility of the game I, I and because I know she loves that that show I had she and my wife come up with some quick characters and the whole thing was about, I, I had this idea where the neighborhood cats had, had gotten into some of the, the enchanted foodstuffs and um, you know, they had to, they had to come up with this big plan. It was basically the whole thing is problem solving. So all that, that kind of problem solving. Good. What I'm talking, the problem solving, I think the article's referring to, and what I'm talking about is when you're getting closer to the, the dragon's lair and hey, all right, wait, record scratch, let's do a cryptogram, you know? <laughs> Hold everything. Here comes a, a number puzzle, you know? That kind of thing. So, but yeah, point taken. Maybe could have phrased it a little bit differently. So, point taken 
All right. So uh, again, I appreciate the call, Taylor. So now we're going to get into some of the sci-fi stuff. Before I get into some of the calls, I got a lot of responses on social media on this one. You know, why are sci-fi games, you know, why are there so few compared to fantasy, horror, and other genres of games, why are so few games sci-fi related? thought I'd read through just a, you know, quick uh, summaries of some of these comments that I got. Um, some people are saying that they just haven't found the right rule set, you know, um, they need the right rules with the right content and they list issues they have with various games. Another person says in their experience, it's a lot easier to create a fantasy setting than a sci-fi setting, especially a cookie cutter D and D style setting with elves and dwarves and unicorns, a sci-fi setting requires the development of a technology and communication of that technology to the players, which could be a large amount of exposition for a serious game. And then they say that is the reason why most popular sci-fi games tend to be licensed because a lot of the exposition and visualization has been done for you, which is a great point and also might be part of the problem because I've heard people say before that one of the barriers to say running Star Wars or Star Trek, some people are afraid that, you know, they're going to have somebody at the table. That's a, you know, a Trekkie, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I've seen the star Star Trek movies. I've seen a lot of the TV shows, but you know, I'm no expert on it. So, you know, some people are like, you know, is there going to be a player at the table? It's like oh, Romulan would never say that. You know what I mean? Like even Star Wars, you know, I like Star, star Wars fine seen all the movies had the action figures when I was a kid and everything. But when I play it and I see the list of all the different alien species, I don't know what three quarters of them are. I have to look up a picture. And even then, you know, maybe they were in some book I've never read. So, and then there's some sci-fi games for, for other, you know, lesser known properties. Like I know there's a, a game for the TV show, the expanse, right. But you know, that's kind of, you know, they kind of got a slim target audience there, you know, a lot slimmer than star Wars or star Trek, at least we could agree. So, so that, that's interesting thinking about the different properties tied to some of the games. Uh, let's see. I think I got another couple of comments. Uh, let's see. People talking about how many, how there's far more shows for sci-fi than um, fantasy, which is true, and that comes up that comes up in some of the calls. So anyway, I, I appreciate when people make comments on social media on the posts. I need to get better at, at reading some of them out. So I thought I'd just share what a couple people were saying. But let's get to another call here. Uh, in fact, I think I might just kind of smush some of these together. I've got calls from Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast. They've forgotten more about RPGs than Froth may ever know. I've got a call from BJ from the Arcane Alienist podcast. This podcast just launched in February, so check it out. The Diary of an RPG Game Master, the Arcane Alienist. We'll hear from BJ, and then I'm going to wrap it up with Larry Hamilton from follow me and die because uh, Larry's got some good stuff on this on their blog too. So uh, we'll check that out as well. Here we go. 
Hey, Froth Jason, feel free to ignore my rambling messages earlier. I think the reason, and this is just purely speculation fueled by alcohol, but I think that the reason we have more sci-fi than fantasy games is AD&D, but also because there's so much more sci-fi media, TV, movies, that kind of thing, that our appetite for sci-fi is satisfied, so we go to games for fantasy. I'm assuming there's more sci-fi books than fantasy books. That might be wrong, but... So I'm going to say because there's more sci-fi in our media, we consume plenty of sci-fi, and so we go to gaming to get our fantasy. Again, that's just alcohol-fueled speculation. And feel free just to play this message. Hey, I was just listening to your uh, question about sci-fi games, and I wonder if part of the challenge – I know this is a as a game master myself. I've run the Fantasy Flight Star Wars. I've run Traveler. Um there's an added level of complexity when you get into most sci-fi games because uh, you've got the individual players where you're still going to do things like you do in D&D where they've got their gear and their abilities and their special specializations and they run combats with aliens or bad guys or cyborgs or whatever they might be fighting. Uh, and then you got the travel component, which which tends to get very abstract in most fantasy games. But when you do the travel component, suddenly you've got a ship with lots of moving parts and its own set of statistics that you got to um, take advantage of and keep up with. And I wonder if that's part of the um, the barrier. Uh, the, the barrier that people kind of look at sci-fi and maybe start to look at the system and then are turned off because there's this whole other game of maintaining a ship. And it's one thing to think about having just a highly abstract, quick-to-use you know, starship, you know, fighter fighter battles like X Wings versus Tie Fighters or something like that in Star Wars, but you you really get this whole other game system of maintaining a ship. It's kind of like domain management, and why I think people don't do it as much in D and D anymore. It's this whole other thing that's bookkeeping and tracking and stuff like that. And I, I don't know if a lot of players really are up for that, or they think they're up for it, then they get bored with it, or when you start shopping around for a game master to run that, thinking, well, I could run that, or I could just stick with D and D or Pathfinder or or something that's a little more familiar and easy to run. Anyway, I wonder if that's part of why sci-fi doesn't take off more than fantasy and horror, just because of that added complexity. Hey, Froth, this is Larry with Follow Me and Die. Just listening to your Friday episode about science fiction, and I know back in the day we did a little bit of Metamorphosis Alpha, a little bit of Gamma World, quite a bit of Star Frontiers, and we even made up our own science fiction RPG and we played quite a lot of that but we always kept coming back to uh, AD&D for back in the day I was really more a fan of science fiction than fantasy but there's something about D&D that hooked me in a way that the science fiction games haven't. I have also played in a Stars Without Number campaign on Roll20 for over a year that ended six months ago I think and I did run two Metamorphosis Alpha campaigns on Roll20 for a while. And I also run Metamorphosis Alpha, Gamma World, and Stars Without Number at cons and always have full tables. All right. So some good stuff there. Good stuff there. And I think we might we might be getting close to the answer. We're certainly finding a, a number of answers that uh, could be applicable. Jason, they're pointing to like a weird reverse psychology thing. Maybe we, our appetite has been sated by all the, I mean, there's unquestionably far more 
sci-fi on TV and movies and traditional fantasy and and a lot you know there was that great spurt in the 80s where we had so many great fantasy movies even the bad ones were good but some of the more recent fantasy style movies have not done well uh, I think there was one like a like a uh, what's the game not Warhammer I keep wanting to say Warhammer whatever that popular uh, online game that everybody was playing. God. Oh, War World of Warcraft. There was some kind of World of Warcraft movie. There was a bomb, major bomb. Even though the video game, you know, is hugely popular. So maybe there is something to that. BJ pointed the complexity. I think you might be on to a little part of it there for sure. Um, the added ship combat and everything can add to it especially if a game has lousy space combat rules. And, um, you know, it, it's interesting. I wonder, I wonder if post-apocalyptic stuff, some of the stuff that Larry Hamilton was talking about was included in the sci-fi. I'm assuming it was, assuming it was. So some of the post-apocalyptic stuff, you can uh, kind of eschew the, the the uh, the starfighter you know spaceship rules and stuff might be a little bit easier, but still maybe just kind of an, an obscure, maybe not just not as easy to wrap your mind around as classic fantasy. I don't know, but um, Larry is one you know amongst other things one of the only people that's ever GM'd a game in Gary Gygax's house. But also, uh, put up a post over at their Follow Me and Die blog. I've got the um, the link up the link up under the intro tab here with the uh, the companion post, where they do a nice little post about um, getting started with science fiction RPGs. Talk a little bit about their background. They put out some ideas about why they think it is a little bit more rare. The scope of science fiction um, and some of the world building, but then they 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 give a number of links to some some games for people to try. One of which is White Star, which is a, probably a pretty good choice for people that are just maybe not experienced with other other games other than D and D because it's kind of built around D and D and it's fairly simple, kind of more like an O D and D sort of space game. So I think that's probably a pretty good choice. And then they talk a lot about, you know, they talk about Metamorphosis Alpha and Gamma World, both of which are excellent. Metamorphosis Alpha is, fa is fantastic. And that's one where uh, you're kind of, you don't have to worry about driving the ship, the warden. You don't, you're not going to be driving that ship. You're just uh, kind of exploring the uh, the massive ship there. So, so anyway, good stuff there from Larry. Great to hear from everybody. We're about to get started into the rest of it, but something else I was thinking about that just kind of ties into this or something else that came up. You know, D&D uh, &D has announced they're going to have three settings coming out, presumably this year. They just announced what one of them was, and no, it was not Spelljammer. I was hoping it would be Spelljammer, and I think that would uh, certainly have more sci-fi-esque games getting played if 5e took the lead on that 
Watsy took the lead on that. But anyway, it is going to be Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. So, and I can get down with that. I like Ravenloft. I've got a ton of old Ravenloft stuff. So I'm fine with that. Ravenloft's an interesting setting. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier uh, with the mystery games and, 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 and everything. The mists are there. Yeah, sure, they're kind of eerie. It's kind of cool, but they're really there just to trap you. You know what I'm saying? Really there just to prevent your magic from enabling you to escape any of the areas. Kind of just a, a nicer way than just saying these spells don't work uh, or a more creative way by having the, the, you know, the mists. But anyway, I've got a couple of the images up of the covers for those. So that is the next thing that's going to be coming out. May 18th, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. Last thing I wanted to mention before we get into it, I wanted to give a shout out to John Solway, who is blogging over at the A Land Beyond Beyond blog, alandbeyondbeyond.co.uk. Someone I've been following on social media for years, but somehow it escaped me. I did not realize that they had this blog going, talking a lot about cool old school games, including unique titles like sky realms of jeroon you want to talk about some sci-fi that might be a little tough to get into try out sky realms of jeroon metamorphosis alpha ardwin traveler all this good stuff and they recently had uh some interviews with rob conley who just dropped their uh their own game the, the majestic fantasy rpg back that on kickstarter they've got an interview and a review over that so Shout out to John Solway. My bad not noticing your blog. I think that's it. Let's get into the maps. Maps of the week. Just a couple of maps to share with you this week because uh, it, it, the, the interview is a little longer than, than some typically are. So uh, trying to make this where it's not, you know, a three hour, a three hour tour. But anyway, really cool stuff. Uh, Goodman Games, you know, do, does DCC. We were just talking about Metamorphosis Alpha. They've done a lot to keep that game alive. They do these great um, original adventures, uh, uh, revisited series with uh, updating classic modules to 5e and everything. And they've just got a slew of amazing artists that work for them. And so this is a post over at their blog, their map of the dealer's hall at the spawn of Cyclops Con. So yeah, we are not quite through this thing to where we're, we're going to be having any kind of face-to-face -face conventions anytime soon. I mean, my gosh, you talk about con crud. You don't want con crud and you, you, you damn sure don't want COVID crud, you know probably one of the last sorts of things to to reopen would be conventions you'd have to think because the whole thing is just hours and hours talking in each other's faces surrounding each other and uh, around a table uh it's a shame uh, thank but thank god for online gaming and that's what this is so, spawn of cyclops con is an online convention and they've got a map up of what's going to be their virtual convention hall. Love the map. And I love this idea. They say it's what you can meet with vendors and artists, chat with them in real time and see their wares as you kind of wander this online convention. 
Now this is running February 26th through the 28th. So by the time you're listening to this, it's just a few days away. But they say, trust us when we say you have never seen anything like this in any, at any online con. So that sounds really cool. I've got the link up to check that out. If you've got some extra time over the weekend, probably not too late to get into this and, uh, you know, and support some of these folks that are, have been hurt by not being able to have these conventions. So check that out. The other uh, map-related thing I wanted to share is this is over at Paleo Logos blog, one of my favorites, the OSR Grimoire. Do a lot of kind of look back, you know, looking back at the early days of the hobby, historical themed posts that are rather interesting, and they always provide a number of good links that can keep you reading for hours. Talking about the geomorphs of the Mad Archmage, looking back at the old dungeon geomorph sets. These are going to come off as quite primitive compared to what's being done with some of the mapping these days, especially. But an interesting look back at kind of the history of these things, as well as uh, on a second post, forgotten geomorphs. On forgotten geomorphs, they're talking about some of these geomorph sets that never came out. And so I just thought this was kind of interesting, cool map related post so be sure and go over to the osr grimoire and check it out zine club all right so i am thrilled today to have a very special guest the creator of the horror sci-fi rpg mothership sean mccoy welcome to the club hey how's it going i'm glad to be here well, I'm excited to have you on because we tried to make this happen, uh, you know, like about a year ago and then, you know, everything, you know, a lot of strange things happened. So it's good that we can finally do this. I know. Yeah. All my sort of communication from like exactly that time period just like went into a black hole. And then uh, this year we've just sort of been waking up and shaking off the dust and looking around and going, OK, where did we leave everything? So I'm glad we're getting to do this. Yeah, that is the exact same for me. I just went on a hiatus for about 10 months and I'm getting back into the swing of it. So it is exciting to be able to talk to you. I'm a big fan of Mothership. And so we're going to talk a lot about that as well as some of the Zine Quest stuff that's going on with the game and everything else. But first, I always like to ask people about their Zine origin stories. So I'm wondering... Do you remember what the first zines you saw were and were they gaming related or something else? So um, the first like zines I saw were in like indie bookstores um, or just smaller bookstores like Powell's or uh, in Portland or Rand McNally in, in New York. <clears throat> and I would see little poetry zines. I think also at a floating world comics in Portland, I would see, um, uh, zines of like uh, indie comics, right? Um, and my brother is a is a great illustrator and a horror illustrator and comic artist and all these sort of things. And so he uh, was storyboarding a movie that he wanted to make, like an indie horror flick. Um, but he storyboarded the whole thing as a comic book in a composition notebook um, called it was called Raw Carcass. And then he just scanned every page and printed it out at my dad's office and saddle stitch stapled it together and gave me a copy. Actually, he didn't even use saddle stitches. He took like a giant rubber band and rubber banded it down the middle. 
and it just sort of clicked in my head like oh you could use this for everything um and then i tracked down a copy of the 1974 rules of D, as well as the the uh black box first edition of traveler and saw that that sort of a5 half letter saddle stitch booklet was also kind of like a zine um in a lot of ways it wasn't um well the original dungeons dragon stuff like the very very first print run was like handmade but you know they were mass produced or whatever um but all that stuff sort of started melting together in my brain about what you could accomplish particularly for ashcan or, or quick releases um on a very very small budget yeah and i wanted to get into that because your game mothership it ties into like zines, you know, a lot like the main books are all kind of like you're talking about, like a, like, I guess like what some people might think of as a proper sort of zine size, but then there are pamphlet supplements there. I even have a, an awesome uh, pocket mod, you know, small little foldable book of the core rules. How important is the zine format in your opinion to your game? So a lot of it has to do with uh, tradition and uh, the way I like to design. Um, so uh, Tuesday Night Games, the company that I co-own with Alan Gerding, uh, we started out in party games, like uh, Two Rooms at a Boom, World Championship, Russian Roulette, That's Not Lemonade. Um, but we started having these really long release cycles where it would take us a year or two to release a game, six months to get it in stock from overseas where we manufacture it. Uh, and we ended up going to these conventions, Gen Con and Origins, year after year after year. And sometimes we would go two years in a row and people would say, like, well, what do you have that's new? And we'd say, nothing. Just same stuff as last year, same, still great. And we realized we couldn't miss a show uh, without having something new come out. And at the time, I'd been pretty heavily into the OSR um, and just sort of keeping my eye on that sort of stuff. And about a year before Mothership released, I put together the pocket mod version of Mothership uh, just to play test it. Because sort of my belief was to have a complete pocket mod of a game was better to have like an incomplete 200 page, you know, rule book um, that was a bunch of scraps. At least I could say this draft, this iteration of this game is, is done and playable as is. And it may not include everything I'd ever want to include, but it's a stable release. Um, so I played it with some friends at Gen Con, it didn't break, and that sort of dispelled the entire illusion for me of what I'd been worried about in RPG design, namely that the mechanics would sort of fall apart, that the, the wheels would come off the, the car and everything would crumble. And so once I did that first playtest, I realized, like, no, this is stable, you know, um, I'm just using a very, very basic D100 system, I can move on. And that's when I got the idea that the next step up for us would be a zine and this was sort of before pamphlets were, were as big as they were now i probably would have moved to a pamphlet um next but instead we went right to a zine because i thought okay another small release you know we'll just take everything that i had crunched down into the pocket mod as small as humanly possible i would expand that with just writing naturally writing in complete sentences having a little bit of room for the tables to breathe and that took us from a pocket mod to probably 16 pages you know you start adding art and now you're at 20 um and we had origins coming up and we realized you know i'm in a, i'm within stone's throw of just knocking this thing out um and by then i had fallen in love with traveler and uh original dungeons and dragons 
and it had really become important to me that I make something in the same sort of format that was sort of a tradition that I wanted to be a part of. Um, and that I wanted to, because I had been so embedded in the OSR at the time, I also knew from a marketing perspective, I could appeal to that group of gamers by really, really going back to the source and saying like this, if you're an old grognard should remind you of those games. If you're new, you'll probably have a more modern attachment to zines, you know, and I just felt like it hit smack dab in the middle of a lot of Venn diagrams. And so we printed up 50, which cost, you know, $100, whereas um, a print run of Two Rooms and a Boom was costing us thirty dollars or $40,000 at the time. And we were like, well, what the hell? Like, what's the risk? Um, and that's sort of what, what dropped us in there. One of the things that I think, you know, you look at like the, the touchstones, like the media touchstones that Mothership sort of, you know, ties to, uh, like the, the series of the Alien movies would probably be kind of most obvious to people. And, and so many people have seen those. What, what do you think it is about, I, I don't know, as far as your, your inspiration for the game, what is it about sci-fi and horror that just makes it such a, a, a great sort of setting and, and genre to, to play role-playing games in? You know, uh, it's, it's really interesting because we could have gone, you know, space opera or hard sci-fi or, or any of these other genres that I really love. Um, but for me, uh, sci-fi and horror went together really well for a few different reasons. Um, big fan of the Alien series, of course. Um, and there's a horror author I'd been reading, Brian Evanson, um, who wrote this really, really wonderful collection of short stories called A Collapse of Horses um, that had a short story called The Dust about these miners, these asteroid miners who um, this dust sort of gets in their suits and they... Um, start hallucinating they start seeing doubles of themselves and it just gets really kind of weird uh and i sort of thought about the things i liked about call of cthulhu or unknown armies or delta green um but divorcing that same style of play from the mythos of the 1920s and putting it in a setting that i really loved um really really started to click for me uh there's you know personal politics involved as well about um, sci-fi horror usually has a sort of dystopic uh, bent to it. There's sort of, uh, if you put it this way, like a neoliberal or hyper-capitalist dystopia, um, usually in movies like Aliens or Blade Runner or Robocop or Terminator. There's some sort of um, massive, massive corporation um, that's that's controlling things and controlling the fortunes of uh, the, the characters in it. And that's sort of aligned... Um, with what I thought was sort of important right now. Um, and, and sort of similarly to games like Warhammer fantasy roleplay, it gave you this opportunity to say, you know, the world is changing. Um, it's not the future that we are promised. And on top of that, at the fringes, these bits of reality are breaking down. We're running into xenomorphs or monsters or ghosts or horrors. We're tampering with things like hyperspace that, that nobody even really has a consensus of how it works. And you're playing you know, a vulnerable blue collar union workers on, on the edge of that entire system. The only people who are sort of in a place to um, interact with it. If you live in the core, you're kind of shielded from it. Um, so all these things sort of came together to me to create this simmering pot or this, this you know, powder keg of, of uh, play that 
I thought that characters and PCs and players could really get into um, and instinctively know sort of what to do um, and, and how to play that game. Yeah, for me, it's like even a bad sci-fi horror movie, like I still watch it. It's kind of like found footage. It's just one of those kind of movies that I don't even mind if it's bad, you know, it's just like an immediate watch for some reason. It's just a perfect kind of marriage of, of, of styles and everything. So much of just even the thought of being out in space is just, just the reality of being there is so deadly that it automatically sets up, you know, conflicts, even just by virtue of being there, let alone what's going on in the scenario. So, Oh, it's absolutely. It's like being in a submarine and having to solve a mystery. Like we're already under the ocean. There already is no escape. So the tension and the stress is ramped up a lot. Um, and I sort of feel the same way. Like uh, people complain about the new aliens movies and there's a new alien series coming out. But for, for me, those are all just gimmies because it's sort of like the old, like pizza, even when it's bad, it's good sort of things. Um, I'm down to watch any old shitty alien movie that <laughs> comes out. Um, it's usually worth my time, if not just my money. Um, and that that's a big part of what attracted me to that setting and genre. There's been a lot of talk and a lot written about just the, the, the layout and the information design of the mothership line. And I wanted to ask about that because usually, you know, I'm no artist. I'm no great designer, but even when I'm looking at something that's really good, I can still at least kind of have an idea or be able to follow the thread on how they put something together. But when I look at things like Gradient Descent and some of the other Mothership stuff, it's almost like it's a, a foreign language to me. I don't know how you even approach a project like that. I mean, is it story first? Or are you already thinking in terms of the information presentation with the flow charts and the, you know, and, and, you know, how do you approach a project like that? You know, it's no wonder that it takes a while to put them together, but is there some kind, is, is there a different approach to, to a mothership project than, than maybe just like a straightforward adventure? How does that work? I think there is. And I think, uh, it's been a thing that we've sort of had to evolve and figure out how we do it and how that's different so that we can teach people who are working with us, like, this is how it's going to be different. A lot of it comes from the fact that uh, the designer and the person in charge of the line is a graphic designer. So I have a lot more power than your average layout person's going to have to push back and say, all this text right here should be bullet points, or all this whole section right here should be uh, an illustration or a diagram. I can sort of push back on that in a way that typically a layout artist is just going to be given the text and the text is going to have been approved by the editor or the production team and say like we've already edited the text it's good to go you know run with it um, and of course they have creative input um, but they might not have the radical creative input i have to very very late in the game change sections move them around add sections that are missing um, because of the way the book is looking to me at that stage and a lot of that comes from a sort of the medium is the message belief of mine, which is that um, the book itself is what the warden is going to be interacting with, not the text, not the words, but all of that together. And so we have to think of every page, every spread as something that they're going to be interacting with and using as sort of as a tool in this, not really high pressure, it's your friends, but, it, but there is a little bit of a higher stakes to 
keep the immersion and, and let your friends have fun. And, and I think everybody's been in that situation where you're playing a game and, and somebody asks you a question about the magic item or the NPC or the room you're in and you don't know the answer, but you, you sort of intuit that it's there in the book. And now you're putting your finger down and scanning the pages or looking for a highlighter or a note, trying to catch out that word that just sort of clicks in your mind, like where the secret lever to the hidden door is um, and how frustrating that could be feeling like you're letting your friends down or that you're slowing the game down, looking up the stuff that maybe you should have prepared earlier, um, not really knowing whose fault it is. Well, we put that fault sort of squarely on the uh, design team um, and we, we try really hard to um, have the manuscripting process not be so segmented out like rough outline, you know, final draft, layout, illustration, but rather um, while the manuscript is being written, I'm putting together uh, example looks of, of things that we could do. I'm trying to get the artist together. Um, during Gradient Descent, I was working on layout um, while the artist was working with me. And so I was able very much to say like, okay, this is how much room I have. This is the text that's going to be on this page. Can you do something like this with this much room so it fits in this space? Um, so I think for a lot of companies, it's hard because you want to segment those things out for scheduling purposes, right? You want to just have the writing be done, cut the writer loose, you know, get in the illustrator, get the pieces together, and then have the layout artist take it from there, then pass it off to editing. For us, we keep all those processes kind of simmering all the time. Um, and we sort of make everything a little bit better. Rough pass, rough manuscript, rough art, you know, tight draft, tight manuscript, tight layout, tight art, final manuscript, final art, you know, final layout. Um, so everything moves up at sort of the same time. So you can um, alter things. You could say, you know, we're ending up having a lot of extra room on this spread. If uh, I might put a diagram here, or if you wanted to add an NPC here, could we you know, this section, maybe we can make that a whole table because we've got the room. Um, or or let's add more art here. Uh, so we're, we're able to sort of do that geometric positioning of space um, that I think a lot of companies aren't able to do because once they're at layout, everything is already locked and they don't want to go back and, and open up sort of um, the process again. Well, all of that really shows up in the work. It's like taking gradient descent again as an example it's one of the only things i can gaming products that i own that i can think of that where you can open something and at first glance it appears incredibly complex and complicated but in reality there's a system there that makes it just uncannily easily to, easy to use and i just i don't think there's anything else like it and so it's no wonder that that gets talked about so much well, I, I wanted to ask you, because sometimes you'll post, a, make different posts I'll see on Twitter and comments about marketing and everything. And I think that the, the marketing that y'all have done for Mothership, obviously it's been successful. It's also been maybe a little unusual in some ways, you know, like I remember you announcing that you had a Discord and this was a, a while back. I was just thinking, huh, like a, a Discord for a game? And that just shows you what I know, you know, now I, I guess every game maybe has their own discord but i wanted to also ask you because there are so many conversations that go on about you know the value of work and not putting things out for free and pay what you want 
not being a good idea and everything. Now, for me, as a consumer, as a customer, I, I buy a lot, you know, I spend a lot on gaming. It's like my hobby and things that I like to read, even if I'm not playing them. And pay what you want has always worked for me because it's introduced me to people almost everything I like that I've gotten for free or been able to look at for free, I end up buying. The core rules for Mothership are available for people for free. You know, how, from your perspective, how has pay what you want, you know, doing that helped Mothership? Uh, it's helped it immensely. And we are uh, very, very, very lucky in that regard. I'll look up some numbers here for you. Um, We've been believers in in pay what you want um, and uh, print and play copies since we started uh, Tuesday Night Games. And I think a lot of that has to do with how well the uh, sort of, what do you call it? How well uh, the print and play for two rooms in a boom went. So when we first got into the industry, um, Alan and I had this idea that the problem with games taking off wasn't that the game wasn't good, but that nobody was playing the game, that nobody had heard of you, it wasn't getting out there. Um, and so with Two Rooms and a Boom, I think it might have even been influenced by Cards Against Humanity, who might have had a print and play. We just thought, you know, we could put this print and play copy out and we could see what happens. Um, and with Two Rooms and a Boom, it has a player count of 6 to 30 players. So we sort of uh, we sort of had this virality where one person could print out a copy and then potentially convert up to 30 other people to enjoying our game. And we started seeing people playing our game uh, at different cons that we weren't able to go to. We had tons of publishers come up to us. And, um, I remember Richard Lanius uh, still teases about this. Um, says you know you're just giving this stuff away for free i like to make money when i make games uh and for us it was the fact that we were nobody nobody knew who we were and we knew we had made this great game and all of a sudden we had built up this audience that was sort of evangelizing the game for us converting people for us uh building up sort of a hype and an awareness of our product to where by the time the kickstarter came we did a hundred k right out of the gate and that really solidified for us this idea that People will pay for the finished version. Even a print-and-play game like Two Rooms and a Boom probably costs 20 or $30 to print out at Kinko's. You have to put in the time and effort to, to cut it out, to round the corners, to sleeve the cards. And if somebody wants to put in that amount of effort and work into our game, we're probably going to get a pretty good return on... Uh, we're probably going to get a pretty good return or a conversion on them playing the game because they put so much effort into making it, right? To printing it out and, and making it for their friends. It's a good chance they're going to play it. So when Mothership came along, it made sense that like the the zines were were affordable to produce. And again, role playing games is just a very competitive industry, and we really wanted to make a name for ourselves. We didn't want the barrier of should I pay seven, ten, twenty bucks for this PDF to be there. We wanted to get in and and sort of make a name and treat the rules as like a loss leader um, in a, in a certain sense, uh, and and then sell the modules themselves and it has just been you know uh remarkable we have had 500 downloads of the player survival guide on drive-through rpg this month uh alone 
And that's people just hearing about us somewhere and going, oh, I'll just check it out. You know, um, we're making about a dollar per copy on those, um, just averaged out for what people are paying. Now, I think the argument online gets a lot into like exposure and charge for what you're worth and pay what you want, and, you know, lowers the rates for everybody. Um, and, and frankly, I just don't buy a lot of those arguments because I think there's a lot of assumptions about how good the quality of everything is, um, how good or how established you are, or like what's fair to do to sort of establish yourself. Um, I think if it's, if you're in charge, if you're the person making the content, you should absolutely be able to give away your content for free, particularly if you have goals in mind, like our goal was to grow as fast as possible. Um, and this has helped us achieve that. And, you know, now our zines have a wider audience of people to sell to. The other thing is we believe in supporting our games as long as humanly possible. And so we knew we weren't just going to drop a system and move on to another system. We knew we were going to follow it up with module after module content um, at different price points like pamphlets and zines and, and um, you know, now working on box sets and stuff like that. Um, and I think a, a hard thing to do is if you release a system and then you move on to another system, yeah, you probably need to charge for each one. But if you release a system for free and you follow that up with a good module and then another module and then another module, um, you'll you'll I think you'll make up the difference um, because you think of the rules as just a demo, right? Um, and and the real money for you is in content. So. With ZineQuest, I mean, there are a number of Mothership things last year, and there are even more this year. I know there are at least five. There's also, you know, kind of a steady stream of third-party Mothership products, you know, going up on DriveThru or Itch and other places. What is it like for you as, like, a creator of the game to kind of sit back and see it take on a life of its own and see other people making product for it? It's very, very rewarding. Um, it's something that we're, we invest in a lot as much as we can um, both to make sure that um, our third-party creators are supported both with marketing pushes um, as well as training we're now getting into um, we're going to put together sort of a QA and a uh, sessions for all the three PP creators to put together uh, where they can ask us about different parts of the process um, we're trying to get them hooked up with more editing um, more illustrators, more layout artists, um, and help them overall uh, become more and more professional. Um, Ian Usum, uh, who's one of the third-party creators who did the drain on Kickstarter, has a, a separate Discord for three people creators, um, and they all coordinate. And so they share advice, um, they share vendors, they share price points, they share marketing. Um, so what you'll see on ZineQuest this year is that they all supported each other with cross-promotion. They all launched um, a little staggered. Uh, they all sort of retweeted each other. And it had this effect of a rising tide lifting all boats. Um, because for us, I know that I don't think Dungeons & Dragons would have been anywhere as big as it was without Judges Guild or without Early Games Workshop putting out their work in the UK. Um, and it's been held up by third-party uh, products ever since. Even the entire OSR is basically a third-party um, creation for Dungeons & Dragons. And so, uh, very, very, very early on, part, probably the reason we started the Discord was we thought um, 
games are easier to design than communities are to build. And to build a community, we needed a place that was healthy and safe for that community to get together. And then we needed to encourage them that their products and their table and their games were just as valid, just as official as anything we put out. And then to empower our third-party creators to go out and make that happen. Um, we knew that as the game got more popular, if we could get third-party creators to be able to make a profit and, and make good money uh, supporting our system, that it would draw more talent out and more and bigger and better third-party creators would come out, which would have this sort of positive feedback loop where they make better content, um, which you know markets the game better, which makes the game more popular, which makes third-party creators more popular. Um, it would help us fill in the gap in our release schedule uh, so that you know for every one official module that comes out, I was looking at the spreadsheet where I track all this, we have 30 third-party products out right now, and we will probably uh, have 40, maybe 50 by the end of 2021. That's um, fantastic. It's insane. And if, if you're a creator and if you're supporting a game long-term and you get your Shopify store up, there's another thing, because now we can sell those third-party products so we can make some money off of it too. And so it, it really has been a hugely positive thing for us and something that we're treating like almost like another arm of the company um, to give as many resources to those creators as possible um, so that they have a way to make the best games they possibly can. We've even done things like funded um, first print runs to where if you make a mothership module and you send it over to us and we like it, we will pay for the first hundred copies to be printed um, out of our pocket just so you have a physical release out there. That's how sort of dedicated we are to this. That's uh, fantastic. So, uh, and, and yeah, I saw a lot of the cross-promoting people were doing because I was backing just about everything. So, <laughs> uh, it, a couple of the themes of this year's Zine Quest seem to be Mothership and Mork Borg. And I was mentioning how I'm glad I don't own Mork Borg because then I would have felt like I had to buy everything. So, <laughs> glad, glad I just, just own half of it. So, but uh, uh, you, you've kind of mentioned kind of cryptically mentioned a couple of things, but I wanted to ask you if you could give listeners a maybe sneak peek at some of the kind of the next official mothership products that y'all have planned. Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's two things that we're working on as sort of um, the next sort of phase. The first one is the mothership boxed set. And this is going to be a revamped version of the player's guide that includes all of our playtesting and feedback for the past couple of years, a brand new uh, book called the Warden's Operations Manual, which has a heavy focus on um, what we're calling game master literacy, which is uh, a big thing in the OSR is, was always uh, rulings, not rules. And uh, usually it was sort of left there for most people. Um, there wasn't as much support for, okay, well, what is a good ruling and how do I make good rulings and how do I change my rulings over time? Um, how do I build a sandbox? How do I prep for an adventure? And you get certain blogs hitting on some great stuff every now and then. Um, Arnold K on Goblin Punch did, did a great job with a lot of this stuff. Um, but no DMG uh, or you know MC guide or anything like that has really, in, in my opinion, tackled it from a just a brass tacks. Day one, you've got the book. Where do we go from here? Um, and that's sort of our approach in the Warden's Operations Manual. Uh, and then, of course, uh, no box set would be complete without a monster book. So we're working on one that is right now called Unconfirmed Contact Reports. 
that is sort of taking our mothership approach to a monster guide, um, not just in terms of usability, but in terms of um, the fact that in a sci-fi horror game, you don't need monsters the same way you need them in a Dungeons & Dragons game. Because in a D&D game, you might have six monsters you encounter in an entire session, and there might be you know, five goblins and an orc and a sorcerer and then a slime. Um, so you need a lot of monsters to be referenced quickly. But in a sci-fi horror game, you might be fighting the same monster for two or three sessions. Um, like the xenomorph might be the key feature of um, several adventures in a row. So what you need is um, more information about what you can learn from fighting monsters or how they evolve or how they react or what you can learn from their corpses or their trace findings or what you've heard about them, what the rumors are. And that's all stuff that we're sort of going into there. Um, we've got a lot of cool stuff that we're, we're hoping we'll be able to afford if we hit certain stretch goals. Um, but we're really thinking of it as, one, the sort of core way to buy the game going forward, um, which will help us get into sort of distribution and more retail stores because we'll be in a box and a lot of uh, stores don't support zines. Um, the ones that do have been incredible, and we've seen more and bigger support for that, um, both in online retail and in, in person. Um, but this will sort of bring us to a new audience. Um, but also it'll sort of um, be, there's been this joke that we've been in beta for like three years. Um, it'll be like an official complete first edition with everything you need uh, going forward. That sounds rad. I love, yeah, with, with the sci-fi horror movies and everything, the monster, I mean, a single monster is kind of like the whole adventure, you know? So uh, that really sounds cool, the way you're developing that. So when, have you decided when you all are going to launch it, or is that still up in the air? We're notoriously slow in this sort of thing, but we're hoping to get the Kickstarter up this year. Probably Q3, if if we push. Um We'll see how the year treats us and everything like that, but it's it's on the forefront of our plate right now. Um, the second thing we're working on pretty heavily is uh, at that lower price point, we want to do a subscription-based service for pamphlets to where for $5 a month, you get a pamphlet um, mailed to your door with a one-shot adventure um, that ties into modules we have now, that brings in new content that... Um, serves as a way for us to develop new writers, new graphic designers, that sort of thing, and serves as that sort of steady stream to where if you're playing Mothership once a month, you've got a one-shot, like, boom, ready to go um, once a month. So brand new, fresh content that's easy and quick to play um, to sort of hold people over between larger releases. Absolutely love that. I love consistent subscription services. There are some uh, Patreon accounts, I back like that, where I know I'm going to get a couple little mini zines or whatever, even if I don't use them, it's in a format and stuff that I enjoy collecting, so that sounds awesome. All right, well, that is a lot of information, and I appreciate it. I always like to end these interviews with the questions three. Sean McCoy, are you ready for the questions three? Hit me. Question number one. What makes zines so magical? I think what makes zines so magical is just that anyone can do them. Uh, and we've been huge into this idea that, like, um, you don't need powerful graphic design software. You don't need a lot of money. Um, you can make 
your own game and it can be good and you can sort of build off of that there's uh, websites like um, game-icons.net that have creative commons high quality you know vector and png um, icons for all sorts of genres you know there's kickstarter there's patreon um, and i even did a blog post and a thread a while back about um, just designing in plain, te- plain text like they used to do just using it like a typewriter um, it comes built in with a very cool aesthetic in my opinion and it's affordable um and uh it's something that anyone can do and so that's the thing that i love about zines is they can get you from idea to full game uh very 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 quickly question two is there something you've learned you know what is something you've learned making zines that you wish you knew when you started um on a business end, I think I would have charged uh, $20 instead of 15 because as the first party adventure um, adventures, like we sort of set the cap for what people can charge in our world, you know, and it's a lot harder to charge more later on than it is to charge less. Um, and the other thing uh, has been to set your final page count ahead of time and trim content uh, to match that because... Um, Every book of Mothership, if you see, we've added like eight to 12 pages. Um, just going like, can we fit in more? Can we fit another page? Can we fit another four pages here? Um, so set your limitations on the outside and then work backwards. Okay, and finally, do you have a favorite zine? Do I have a favorite zine? Um, I love Through Olten's Door. Um, I think that's just a, a great one and then one that i'm really hoping to come back is uh imperio uh, the sort of traveler or the thousand sun zine by james malshevsky yeah now i um through Alton's door just had a wildly successful kickstarter for um for number three uh love that stuff it's just so original and different what how how many issues did james get out of that imperio was it just the one or just the one yeah and i follow um excellent traveling volume um for for, uh his uh empire the pedal throne game um but imperial obviously hit imperial hit a lot closer to home um i love a lot of stuff i love hobonomicon um from jared crater and and doug kovacs and, and wayne and those guys um all the dcc people have been doing zines um for for such a long time and in a way that nobody else has um so i've got a lot of love for them too but really there's just a ton of great stuff out there no matter what genre you yeah with the dcc stuff there even just the index for uh third party zines is like a novel's length you know what i mean yeah (laughs) and and i don't and talk about dedication to the community to be able to even keep up with all that is incredible so absolutely Uh, I have a lot of admiration for the DCC community. Um, I love the game. It's not like my game of choice or, you know, one that I'm always playing or anything, but as far as community goes that you have to kind of take your hat off to those, those folks that is, that is community done. Right. That's what we've sort of uh, modeled ourselves after everything I've said today was just looking at DCC and and the, the kinds of people that play and how they put running games and playing games first that they play with all sorts of different people um, and that the community is very, very, very involved and sort of doesn't take themselves too seriously um, has just ended up for a very, very healthy game that doesn't even feel like it belongs in a group. It's just its own sort of thing. 
um, which is hard to accomplish. So um, we're just sort of following in their footsteps there. Hard to accomplish, and especially with a game based on D&D. So. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Sean, I just really appreciate you taking some time to come and talk to us. Great conversation. Uh, I'm just uh, really happy for you with the success of Mothership. It's a great game, and it sounds like it's got a, you know, a lot of cool stuff ahead of it. So thank you so much for coming by. No, I appreciate it. I'd love to come back anytime. All right. So, yeah, thanks again to Sean McCoy for coming by and joining the club. I've got links up over to the Mothership store, as well as a link to uh, the Mothership Twitter account uh, for folks out there on Twitter if you want to follow along. But uh, really enjoyed that. Thanks again, Sean. Zine Quest is... Well, it's at an end for me. I'm done backing. I'm done. I think I ended up backing 18 things. So I went over there, you know, went over on my goal. Definitely went over on the money. Definitely went over on the money, but still rolling along. Got some cool stuff to share. If you've got any money left, there's still a lot of good stuff. And the best place to be checking that out is over at the Bone Box Chant blog. As always, Panda Atheist, keeping up with this stuff for you. They've also been having some guest posts. Uh, ZineQuest guest post three over there. Uh, Derek Kinsman posting. Um, and I know they've got one that's uh, doing really well right now too. Uh, darn it, I don't have it open to tell you the name of it. I'll have a link up when you're listening to this. And Clayton Notestein uh, is doing another guest post. So they're picking out ones that they're looking at and talking about them over there. There was also there was also a, a post over at the CBR comic book site, CBR.com. Big post, just kind of general terms. Zine Quest 3 harkens back to old school Dungeons and Dragons. Now, Philippe Ricard, who last year did the beloved Underbelly, which was one of the stranger zines that I backed last year. You can buy that now at their itch page. I've got that up. They also, it's already funded, it's already done, but they, they did the Lethal Fauna Bric-a-Brac zine for this year's. They reached out to me and mentioned that some zine creators were trying to get together on this spreadsheet and and share zines with each other. So I've got, you know, they reached out to me about that. I'm going to have Philippe on at some point, maybe when uh, Lethal Fauna is getting ready for, for its release. But anyway, they wanted me to put this up. So I've got a link to this Google, um, uh, what are they, what would you call it? basically just a spreadsheet where you can sign up, put your information and stuff in there if you're a zine creator and want to share zines with others. So I thought that was cool. Check it out. Over at the Archon's Court blog, Luther Gutekunst has continued having their zine quest interviews and they've got Ava Islam who's doing the errant game that I've been talking about a little bit. And I think it's got like a day or two left as of uh, Wednesday with this coming out. So we're running out of time to check it out check it out 
one that was recently launched from the folks over at Appendix N Entertainment, appendixnentertainment.com for old school essentials, The Child Thieves has just launched. So I've got a link to them talking about that. You can hear more about what that one's about. Uh, over at the Old School Armory blog, osarmory.com, Zine Quest Hype, Not a Place of Honor by David Lombardo. So they are talking about a uh, David Lombardo's Zine Quest offering, Not a Place of Honor. Again, a lot of these posts that I was seeing this week, the stuff's already funded. It's gone. So, you know, because it's a weekly show, stuff, God, I mean, a lot of the stuff I backed now has already collected their money and everything. So I'm trying to just focus on ones that still have a few days at least left by the time you're listening to this one. Uh, but this one uh, looks cool. You can check it out. It is a supplement and an in-universe object created by the fictional Bureau for Arcane Neutralization of Esoterics. Uh, so some weirdness. Not a place of honor. Check it out. What else do I have? Uh, okay, this was not necessarily related to Zine Quest, or not for this year's Zine Quest. Uh, I guess these were from last year's. And this is a review over at Rolling Boxcars of Monty Hall, a fifth edition zine with a first edition vibe. So these are old school style zines for 5e. And they give a review of issue zero issue one and in in, in <laughs> an issue two of monty hall and these look cool if you're a 5e player but want kind of an old school style zine for it you can check that out i have backed i think three more things since we talked and this is it unless something amazing comes out this is it this is all i can do but i backed uh little katie's tea party the one that i talked about a couple episodes ago i just thought it's such a beautiful idea you know you play as the imaginary friend to a, to a child as they as they grow up and and i, I just like the idea of that one so i backed that one then i backed before fire the comedy cave dweller rpg this one just looks silly it looked like something that uh that my family would like to play together so you know act like a caveman one thing i like about this is you can only use words that are on your sheet so it has a few words on there like me and smash and stuff like that so you you don't have much vocabulary you can only use the words on your sheet so it's a lot of me smash me eat you know and you can actually write down just a few words and those are the words you can say so that sounds fun to me and then i backed project cassandra uh, this is one that I talked about a little bit. Psychics, Cold War era psychics, Project Cassandra. So those are the last ones I backed. I hope you all made out a little bit better than me uh, as far as uh, sticking with your goals. But, you know, uh, I've got a lot of good stuff coming. I'm sure a lot of you all do too. So, so anyway, that's what I got on the zines. Random tables. All right, so we're yeah, we're already a ways into this one, so I'm just going to roll on one random table today. 
but it is a doozy over at the Archons March On blog. And this is Simiurge's blog. I do a lot of cool random tables over here. This one is D12 Obvious Traps with an Unexpected Twist. Love this idea. Obvious Traps with an Unexpected Twist. Uh, one, a big red button labeled self-destruct. If you press it, you become an alcoholic. <laughs> an unexpected twist. An obvious trap with an unexpected twist. Let's do, let's do at least one more on here. Uh, I got a one again. All right. Bottle bearing embossed skull and crossbones. Obvious. Skull and crossbones on the bottle. If you drink it, save, or your skull will steal some of your bones and escape your body as a cat-sized creature. Swallowing the creature, possible to do, thanks to your boneless jaw, will return your bones. <sighs> Simiurge, what are you up to? One more. Uh, when you enter the room, a large clock with various wires and pipes running through it begins ticking. Tick, 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 tick. After 10 minutes, the clock will count down to zero. If you are still in the room when that happens, it will reset to 10 minutes. And your temporal duplicates will enter the room through the same entrance you used. If you both leave the room, then the last one to leave will disintegrate. You know this instinctively, but your duplicate does not. All right, Simiurge. I don't know what you're up to, but keep doing it. Hump Day Blogorama. All right, some cool stuff on the blogs. As always, now, I think it was last week I was sharing a John Peterson post about what might be the first RPG, a Wild West war game with some role-playing kind of encouragement in the, in the, in the book. But this is another one uh, trying to, to get to the bottom of when it started. Over at the Bogswood blog, bogswood.blogspot.com, Hidden in Shadows. D.H. Boggs posting about 50 years of fantasy roleplay tabletop games. It states that today, when this was posted, marks an interesting, possibly momentous anniversary. It has been 50 years since the Boris Karloff movie, The Black Room. The Boris Karloff movie, The Black Room, aired as part of a double feature with Werewolf of London on Channel 5's Saturday run of Horror Incorporated in the Twin Cities. Why is that important? Well, let's take a step back and remember what Dave Arneson said. Quote, some months after Mr. Wesley left, a local TV station had on several old monster movies, which I watched while eating popcorn and reading old Conan novels. It was then that Blackmore Dungeon was first conceived. Starting with a few sheets of graph paper, the upper levels took shape. The next week was spent laying out my war game table to represent the castle and countryside around Blackmoor. So by doing the sleuthing to find out when this stuff aired 50 years ago on Channel 5 in the Twin Cities, it's kind of nailing down when the first 
you know, Arnis and Blackmore game was ran. So interesting stuff. DH Boggs does a lot of really cool historical posts over there. So check that out. More on the early days of the game over the Xenopus Archives blog that does more than any other blog by a million miles to keep the Holmes era basic set alive. On Tuesday, February 16th, they celebrated Holmes Day 2021, the 91st anniversary of the birth of J. Eric Holmes. And they have a lot of links and stuff of their Holmesian highlights over the past year. So check that out. If you are a fan of classic D&D, you will enjoy a lot of this stuff. Living legend Jeff Grubb posts over at the Grub Street blog, grubstreet.blogspot.com. Now, they mention John Sacknoth Rateliff's blog, sacknoths.blogspot.com. Again, all these links are up at the Thought Eater blog. And John Rateliff have been doing a lot of reviews of old TSR board games, such as The Awful Green Things from Outer Space, Snit's Revenge. Now, that one's by Tom Wom, which, interestingly, I always thought their name had to be Tom Wham. But no, it is pronounced Tom Wom. Uh, more old board game reviews like Knights of Camelot and stuff. And Jeff Grubb mentions that they're going to talk about one that they guarantee they don't have, War of the Wizards. Now, War of the Wizards is a board game uh, predating, I guess it predates D&D. Yeah, predates D&D, set in M.A.R. Barker's Tecumel setting. This is before the Empire of the Petal Throne box set came out. And it is a game of dueling wizards. It says the concept of the game is simple. Two spellcasters, choice of sorcerer or priest, are at opposite ends of a football field. They cast spells at each other and advance down the field at their, their opponents says the original game was self-published by Barker and is incredibly rare. The second edition was in a plastic bag from TSR and was quickly replaced by one of TSR's early boxes. But anyway, a look back at a fascinating, rarer than rare, TSR game, uh, originally self-published by M.A.R. Barker, War of the Wizards. What else do I have? Okay, from the old to the modern, over at Death Trap Games. Welcome to the Death Trap. Deathtrap-games.blogspot.com doing a review of Blades in the Dark from John Harper. Still haven't ever really checked this game out, and I see so many people talking about it. A lot of people enjoy it. There's a whole other games kind of using the mechanics forged in the dark games. And, uh, and I believe it was, uh, I can't remember who had, who I had on might've been James from crumbling keep that was talking about it, or it might've been Logan Dean, but somebody was talking about how much they enjoy the game. But, um, if you're like me and you knew nothing about blades in the dark, this is a really good review. It goes into details about all the mechanics and 
and it, it looks like a really interesting game. So, so anyway, that's at Death Trap Games review of the game Blades in the Dark from John Harper. I wanted to give a shout out to the Sheep and Sorcery blog. Michael Kennedy over there has launched a little YouTube channel, and I just noticed them posting about that. I thought I'd give them a little boost. Michael Kennedy from the Sheep and Sorcery blog starting to do some videos over on YouTube, The Dungeon Preacher. Check that out. And then finally on the blog, last week I was talking about the Haughty Fantasy Adventurer blog, haughtyfantasy.blogspot.com, and their series they had started about who is the best D&D adventure designer ever. So they threw out some great names on their honorable mentions. Now they're looking at the pack, and this includes, interestingly, some more modern designers in addition to, well, some of the really classic UK designers like Graham Morris, Don Turnbull, Jim Bambra. They also mention some modern designers, Anthony Huso, who is interestingly one of the only people I know of that plays first edition AD&D completely by the book. And Gabor Lux who is definitely uh, deserving of being on this list. Uh, they do, you know, incredible stuff. Uh, Beyond Fomal Hot, uh, Zine Blog, and um, Echoes from Fomal Hot. And also the uh, Castle Zentillum, uh, kind of a homage to Tegel Manor that came out recently. Anyway, so that's who they've got on in the pack leading up to their number one. Eh, but I'm not going to spoil the number one for you. I'll, I'll make you all uh, go and check this out, check out these links, and see if you agree with who their number one D&D adventure designer ever is. In fact, they kind of cheat and give you two. So, so check that out. Free stuff. Oh, whenever I start running out of steam, the free stuff comes along. To rejuvenate me. What do I have with the free stuff this week? Ah, yes. Hodag RPG has put up another pamphlet, Dagmail. You know, Chainmail, Dagmail. And I love these things. Solo or with a pal, the world's most beloved game just got a serious upgrade. Do you have what it takes to win Dagmail? This is over at their itch page. Check out all their stuff while you're over there. Like I told uh, Hodag, pretty soon they're going to have to start charging for this stuff. So check it out. And this is cool. This is from L. Barber. I spotted this over on Reddit, I believe. Arcana Ratter. No, Arcana Ratten. This is a Maze Rats hack with inspiration from the Dark Eye game, which I believe is the most popular, or at one time it was the most popular RPG in Germany. Arcana Ratten, a hybrid Dark Eye Maze Rats hack. Come on, kitty, calm it down a notch. Kitty, I think, is hungry and is not being subtle about it, so I'll have to take care of that in a minute. Chris Tam, 
the fa at the fabulous Elfmaids and Octopi blog, elfmaidsandoctopi.blogspot.com. Put up a free PDF pocket mod zine, Castle Crab. They're also plugging their Patreon, which I'm a backer of, and I encourage everyone to go over and back. They have so many free zines and stuff. You know, not, not free. I mean, you back, you know, they have so, you know, you get more than your money's worth, put it that way. You know, dozens and dozens and dozens of, of, of pocket mod zines and uh, projects they're working on and everything else. One of my favorite creators, Chris Tam. So check that out. Castle Crab, free PDF zine. Vance A at Lester's Ramble has dropped another couple of adventures. They they usually will grab a, um, a Matt Jackson map. Really talented cartographer, Matt Jackson. And um, they uh, do their maps and stuff over at msjx.org. And Vance will take one of their maps and make a little adventure out of it. So they've got two up. Bridge Out Ahead. Bridge Out Ahead and Stone Ash. The Stone Ash Chamber of Commerce Welcome Brochure. So be sure and go and check these out. I, I love these little, little deals from Vance. And the final free thing I've got for you this week is over at the Dumpstat Adventures blog dumpstatadventures.com they focus on 5e kind of a slick site too my gosh they, they're on a ton of uh, social media anyway talking to myself now uh, they've got to post up the environment surviving the wilds and so this is like a free pdf about uh you know adventuring in different environments and stuff for 5e um survival and that kind of thing uh, but that you could probably take and kind of, you know, work into just about any, any game. Uh, uh, so anyway, check that out. The final topic. All right. So interesting post today for the final topic over at the Gnome Stew blog. GnomeStew.com. <clears throat> they have a number of people that blog over there, but this is from Pete Petrusha debilitating conditions at the table and so this is about an experience that every GM and probably every player has dealt with at some time when you've got these effects that hit you in combat that basically knock a player out basically render them useless worthless unable to act or if they are able to act unable to really do anything you know for for a long amount of time or at least, you know, the 30 minutes plus or whatever it's going to take you to finish the combat. And there's a lot of this in, in, in a number of games. And they ask, how do you keep that player engaged at the table when they're resigned to their current fate? It's almost like they're better off dying. <laughs> you know, you're better off dead. At least then you can be rolling up another character instead of uh, whatever, being petrified, petrified by a creature and... Uh, and just kind of standing there as a statue, you know, for 45 minutes until the players get done with the combat and can come cast a spell on you or drag you to another town, you know, if they're unable to get rid of that petrification. This reminds me a lot of some of the house rules I made in fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons because it had some conditions that were, that were kind of innovative 
to deal with this, like being dazed, where you can't take your main action, you know, you can't attack, but you can still move, you know, you can still do something. You're just kind of dazed, but you're, it, it didn't completely take, take you out of it. But then on the flip side, they had a condition of being stunned. At least I believe it was called stunned. Pretty sure it's called stunned. It's been a while. But stun completely took you out of it. And in that game, which is basically like a miniature, almost miniature, kind of like a miniature skirmish game. Let's stop short of calling it a war game, but certainly a miniature skirmish game. Your turn could take oh, quite a while before it gets back to you. So if you're going to, you know, be waiting to get to your turn only to not act, basically go through two rounds, you're, you're completely just, you know, to flip on the phone. I mean, the GM wouldn't even mind you being on the phone at that point because all you can really do is track damage if you get hit or something, you know. So they ask in the post, um, uh, let's see what they say here. They say, well, they say, in theory, they love the idea of debilitating conditions. Player characters need to be threatened and put in difficult situations. Debilitating conditions remind players that their characters are mortal. They add risk. They force players to problem solve, to act, until they don't. Right? I mean, as a GM, I, almost, I feel bad if somebody's kind of just, you know, laying around or unable to do something for, you know, you know, for an extended amount of time. It's just no fun. If it happens to you, it's no fun. Now, do we say something like, ah, oh, man up, it's part of the game? Or do we look at trying to approach it in a way, you know, approach it in a way that's more fun? I mean, I guess it's what's, what is more important to you for it to be gritty, realistic, grimy, for people to be knocked out for extended amounts of time? Or is the fun more important? Or is that fun to you? I can't believe any player would say it's fun. I mean, with a straight face. No, I like it, Froth. It's gritty. I'm petrified, and I sit around, and everybody gets to do stuff but me. I love it. It's realistic. You know, I don't see anybody arguing for that. I guess the solution, if you even think there needs to be one, to me, is some kind of debilitating condition that still allows for some sort of role play. So uh, maybe some kind of extreme nausea, right? Uh, you can't attack, but you can you can role play projectile vomiting all over your <laughs> all over your fellow players. You know, something like that at least, or maybe something that. Um, something that you have to maybe sacrifice something but can continue to act, you know? So I know I'm ranting and, and rambling a little bit, but I'm just interested in what people think about it. You know, debil uh, debilitating conditions in games kind of makes sense when you're reading it. You maybe like the fact that there's the threat. Certainly, threat of death needs to be there. But does threat of having to sit out for a 30 to 45 minute or longer, depending on the system, uh, 
we need to have a threat of sitting out of combat and kind of having, you know, a third of your game session just being a statue or just laying there like a heap, you know. Threat of death's one thing. Threat of no fun is kind of another, right? Maybe it's that I'm just getting older, or maybe this I've I've sat around too many times. Maybe I've petrified too many people, or maybe I've sat there letting the rounds go by, being petrified too many times. I don't know what it is. I guess really one of the solutions is just to run like hell if you know something like that's coming. I mean, obviously, but is a bad game design to just have a, a sit out and suck mechanic? I don't know. I don't know. I'm tired. Let me know what you think. Anchor.fm forward slash thought eater. Outro. Oh, getting a little rambly there. That was not my original final topic, but I made an editorial decision because the original post that I was going to talk about had a lot of name calling and was really argumentative and it kind of got in the way of the points they were trying to make. And I decided I did not want to give that post any shine. So, but anyway, it's been a long time, been a long time recording. As always, the show is a labor of love. Uh, I'm going to keep doing it regardless. But if you want to support the effort that I'm putting in for this show every week, you go to patreon.com forward slash thought eater. It's only a dollar a month. I do have three kind of super backers. I want to give a shout out to Rob C from down in a heap. One of the only podcasts I can stand to listen to down in a heap. Jason from nerds, RPG variety cast. Jason's forgotten more about RPGs than froth may ever know. Nerds RPG Variety Cast, and of course, KremlinKeep.com, Pro GM Services, Adventure Subscriptions, and congrats to Kremlin Keep on their successful marching order Kickstarter for ZineQuest. If you have any comments about anything I talked about, go to anchor.fm forward slash thought eater. Leave a message. Remember that all these links are up over at the thought eater blog. Just Google thought eater blog. Check it out. Slap it on your blog roll. Huge thanks to Sean McCoy from the Mothership RPG for stopping by. Great conversation. I'm enjoying these interviews. I'm on, I've got... Got lots of stuff lined up. Lots of stuff lined up to bring it to y'all in the future. Thank you so much to all the folks for calling in. You made the show better. Thank you for that. I think that is it. I will talk to y'all on Friday. Oh, and as usual, under the outro tab, a couple of humorous things for you if you want to check that out. I think that is everything. So I am done. Let's go, Logan. Sickly platypus, a psychic grenade Zeroing in on your mental trade Gonna help you escape from the grind Thought eater gonna blow your mind